This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hi, everyone. This is Joshua Lewis with the Remnant Radio. Today, we're in part two of Christ Consciousness. We are here in studio with Stephen Bancars. But before we dive into our subject today, we're going to let you know what Remnant Radio is, what we're all about. Remnant Radio is a theology broadcast. We stream every Monday night at 30 p.m. Central Standard Time and Tuesday from 4 to 5. Uh, We interview pastors and teachers from different churches and denominations from uh, various uh, uh, theological groups. We kind of suspend our presuppositions, learn from our Christian brothers who uh, exist in a different theological denomination. And if that's something you may be interested in, learning all the views on eschatology, all the views on soteriology, Remnant Radio is the channel for you. Hit the subscribe button, make sure to like the video, and uh, we come out with content like this all the time. Not All like, the time. Not like this. Steven Bankars is This is one of a kind. Unique. But we had this kind of content. This is because this is a part two. That's part two. You got to go back and see part one. It was really good talking Christ consciousness with our man, Stephen Bankars. And we're right. so excited to have you back, Stephen. Also did a little road trip last week, and we talked about, uh, about spiritual warfare with Dr. Sam Storms. And mm-hmm. so you're going to want to go and check that out. We've done a number of episodes with Stephen on the New Age, and Christ consciousness fits into that category of of new age and kind of the way new age has infiltrated the church. And so, uh, and so maybe for those who have no idea what Christ consciousness even is, Stephen, actually, even before that, tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll start diving into the topic. Yeah. So I used to teach new age spirituality. That was my job. It was my passion. Um, and I thought it was true. Obviously, I was fully convinced in my own mind. I used to teach Christ consciousness. I used to be a pantheist. I used to practice astral projection, lucid dreaming, uh, mushrooms, um, meditation. Had some pretty interesting experiences in the New Age. Uh, Made a lot of money in the New Age teaching this stuff. And then encountered Christ, the living God. Realized I was wrong and then turned my back on teaching that stuff and um, am now in full-time ministry on YouTube and uh, traveling, doing speaking on the New Age movement, helping Christians understand this stuff, and also New Agers understand their practices and their beliefs in light of Scripture. Um, I feel like it's a really big need, especially in the church right now, because you have teaching that's creeping into the church that is from the New Age stream that blends itself in as though it's just a, a, um, a more spiritual way mm-hmm. to understand some of these same truths. It's just a more spiritual spin on what it means to say, you know, Christ fills all things yeah. or has united all things in himself. And so Christ consciousness is the idea that G is the idea that there is a divine essence and presence within all of material creation. Everything emanates from the divine and is made up of the divine some would want to call this spirit or source or Brahman um, or universal consciousness or source consciousness. And this is the fabric and substance of all material reality. 
of everything in creation, including us, and therefore we are God by nature. We're made up of God as God. And so Jesus is someone who realized that. He realized that his personal sense of self was an illusion. I'm ultimately God by nature. Everything is intrinsically divine by nature. And when so he graduated from ordinary human consciousness to God consciousness, which New Agers will call Christ consciousness, the, the consciousness that Jesus had, unity with the divine. So it's really, you need to become conscious that you're actually God. Yes, your problem is self-ignorance. You're, you just didn't realize you're God. Right, you're a God with amnesia. So and, like Adolf Hitler yep. needed to realize he was God. Yep, the kingdom of God was within Adolf Hitler. He was God by nature. He was the word made flesh, the logos made flesh, as we all are. Jesus realized that Hitler okay. didn't. Now put it in the most... I mean, I hate to even say this flattering light because, you know, nobody's ever, no Christian's ever going to fall for Adolf Hitler as God. Right? Sure. That's not what they come out of the gate. With. Okay. How is this sold? Okay. It would be, it would be sold as, um, they'll go the, to the, the scripture, the spark of the divinity, mm-hmm. the spark of divinity within each of us. Right. And, you know, God, there's a little bit of God in each of us. And that's what it means to bear the image of God. Like it, it's very slippery right? Some will be more overt in their explications of it. Um, but it does come down to man being intrinsically divine in the same way that Jesus was. And what's concerning is how this is beginning to work its way into the church, into Christian circles through people like Rob Bell and through people like Richard Rohr. And I mentioned Richard Rohr in the last episode. People need to go watch the last episode if they want to hear what Christ consciousness is here at being defined by Eckhart Tolle, Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, and so forth. But also here, I think we gave maybe three or four different variant refutations of Christ consciousness from the scriptures. But in this episode, I think we're going to look at the um, proof text, some of the proof text they'll use to try and justify this idea that the Christ is the indwelling divine presence in all things. The Christ is within us. We need to unlock that and tap into that through meditation and self-awareness and accessing deeper levels of consciousness. A person who's teaching this, who we talked about in the last episode, his name's Richard Rohr. And in the last episode, I used a pretty strong word to describe him and and some people didn't like that. Um, My only hesitation for calling him that would be for the sake of the church, right? Which was, you called him a snake, is that right? I called him a snake, yeah. Yeah. So I think- Which, to be fair, Jesus calls Herod a fox. So it's not unprecedented that someone would use- that kind of metaphor to refer no, to someone. No. So the question is whether it's justified or not. So right. we'd love to hear your justification. Right. So I would say that any New Testament passage you have about ravenous wolves or false teachers or false prophets, I use that word very sparingly. And if you've seen the interviews I've done in the past on this channel on New Age and the Charismatic Circuit, I'm very, I use that those words very sparingly mm-hmm. to describe people whom, whom many others would ascribe those titles to. But I think that he's probably the most, he's one of the most sure examples biblically of those terms and those titles. And I don't want to be unnecessarily abrasive. And so I withhold using that kind of language just for the sake of those who are Christian who might be like, hmm, I've been dabbling in some Richard Rohr stuff. I don't want to unnecessarily offend people, mm-hmm. but I want people to understand that Satan's goal is to slither his way into the church disguised as a Christian, 
under the guise of something that looks good to Christians. An angel of light looks good to believers. Yeah. Right? So his job is to yeah. deceive believers. He's and so eloquent. He, he's he eloquent. eloquent. I haven't read his books, but I've, I've listened to him before. He actually says some insightful things. I'm like, okay, that's, that's pretty insightful. And, and that's the thing is like Satan's never just like, let me give you 100% falsehood. It's like a little bit of truth mixed with a little bit of error. Right. a lot of error. And uh, and that seems to be the case here. So maybe you could dive into the Richard Rohr thing a little bit. Right, yeah. So I want to read what he has to say about Christ consciousness. This is a series of quotes from four articles on his website, one called Universal Salvation, the other called The Union of Human and Divine, the other The Cosmic Christ Week 2, and the other The Cosmic Christ Week 1. So you're going to hear him define. And so when we're talking about false prophets and false teachers and wolves and all this stuff, when we're assessing any teacher, irrespective of whatever title we do or don't want to ascribe to them, I think the first place we need to park is what is their Christology? What do they believe about Jesus? It's like when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? It's the most important question, right? Every single pseudo-Christian cult or false religion, false spiritual practice, they are attempting to either diminish Christ's deity or raise the humanity or sorry, the deity of humanity, to bring them on par. Mm-hmm. They're trying to diminish Christ in some way or That's dull true. out his light. And I think that as much as Richard Rohr may, may have cool things to say about various topics, for me, I want to know, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus Christ to you? What do you believe about God's relationship to fallen man? And what did Jesus do on the cross for us? Those are going to be my three most important questions, right? So, uh, like, what theory of the atonement, right? what Christology, and what anthropology, I guess we could say. So their understanding of man. Their understanding of man. You've come on the show multiple times and have been very careful with your language about other teachers that you'd say, hey, there's error here. And you've straight up said, hey, some of these guys, these are Christian brothers. Sure. Um, But I wouldn't wouldn't, uh, follow them. I wouldn't let them lead me. They don't have the discernment to, to lead me for me to eat that much bone and spit that much bone out i don't want to follow these guys they're christian mm-hmm. um they're probably entertaining some spirits i'm not fans of mm-hmm. uh, but so you're, you're putting this into a category of this is not a christian brother no. who is teaching uh a few things wrong this no. is an essential christian doctrine yep. this is a departure from the christian faith yeah um and and maybe we need to read that before we start qualifying things but uh just so people understand the category that we're talking in right we're talking heresy yeah is what we're talking we're talking about. heresy and man it's so like even the title christ consciousness if you don't have an awareness of what that means and its connection to eastern mysticism and all of that like i want to be a, i, I want to be conscious of christ i want to be right. conscious of christ right but they're saying be conscious that you're as christ, christ. Yeah, conscious so, as christ so dig into it a little bit more let's hear about richard war okay so here's what he has to say about Christ. So a trademark feature of New Age Eastern mysticism, Christ consciousness doctrine, is the idea that Jesus and Christ are separate. Jesus is the historical man. Christos in the Greek refers to some kind of divine presence hidden in creation, the divine essence in material reality. And even though Christos is used over 500 times in scripture, always referencing a person, namely Jesus of Nazareth or the Messiah, never referencing some divine essence or principle um, present within all things. We went through some objections in the first episode, but Jesus and Christ are distinct from one another. And Jesus just happened to embody Christ as you can. You do now. You're just not conscious of it. You're not living from that 
Christ conscious reality as he was. So here's what he says, and this is going to this is make me, you know, sick going over some of these quotes, but this is from the horse's mouth, okay? He has a whole book on this topic too called The Universal Christ. And what he'll do is he'll keep referring to church fathers and he'll appeal to like origin or something, people who had sloppy theology and say, oh, I'm not teaching anything different. This is early church. You know, universalism, this is early church. You know, there's some, you know, Eastern Orthodox mystics who believed something along the lines of what I'm saying. And so he tries to root it in like this weird pseudo history that he believes is Orthodox history. And here's what he has to say about Christ. And again, bucketing these things is very important to me. There's a difference in my mind between a false understanding of the same Christ and a false Christ, mm-hmm. right? So there's a tipping point, and we can debate about where that tipping point is, but I think a lot of these you know, charismatic circuits today who have very sloppy language talking about kenosis or the hypostatic union, we're talking the same Jesus. We're talking a false understanding of the same Jesus, and it's a very slippery slope. Right. But this or is even sometimes like a... F- a f- a poor way of wording what might actually be a right understanding for them. Sure, right? sure, right, exactly. But this is a different Jesus. Right. So let's get a quote. This is just a different Christ. A universal notion, so this is from Universal Salvation, an article on his website. A universal notion of Christ takes mysticism beyond the mere individual and private level that has been seen as mysticism's weakness. If authentic God experience overcomes the primary split false split between yourself and the divine, then it should also overcome the equally false split between yourself and the rest of creation. For some of us, the first split is overcome personally in an experience of Jesus. But for many others, maybe even most, union with the divine is first experienced through the Christ. In nature, in moments of pure love, silence, inner and outer music with animals, awe before beauty, or some kind of brother sun and sister moon experience. Why? Because creation itself is the first incarnation of Christ, the primary and foundational, quote, Bible that reveals the path to God. The first incarnation of the Christ mystery started about 13.8 billion years ago at the Big Bang. Some start with Jesus, but many who began with the Christ mystery did not experience, did not have that experience validated by the church. They looked secular, humanistic, or mere, like, or like mere nature mystics. We are indeed saved inside the Christ mystery since the beginning of consciousness. Only an eventual time did this community take the form of church. So we are called to love both Jesus and Christ. You can begin with either Jesus or Christ, but eventually it's easiest to love both. Too many Christians have started and stopped with Jesus, never knowing the universal Christ. Many non-Christians have started with loving the Christ by another name. I've met Hindus, Muslims, and Jews who live in this hidden mystery of oneness. And I have met many Roman Catholics and Protestants who are running away from the Christ mystery as either practical materialists or pious spiritualists. The incarnation of flesh and spirit is Christianity's most important contribution to spirituality. And this is the meaning of the Christ, although you do not need to name it as such. Full salvation is finally universal belonging and universal connecting. Our Christian word for that is heaven. This is why Jesus can say to a man, uh, a man dying in time, this day you are with me in paradise. The Christ is here, now, everywhere, and always. And let me keep reading here so we can 
provide some more clarity. Let him elaborate on this. Here's from the union of human and divine. The good news is that we also are also part of eternal divine embrace. Now, as the ongoing body of Christ extended in space and time, we are the second coming of Christ. There are clear, there are clear statements in the New Testament about a universal meaning to Christ in the early Christian era. Or sorry, of a universal meaning to Christ. In the early Christian era, only some Eastern fathers, such as Origen, Irenaeus, and Maximus, noticed that the Christ was clearly something older, larger, and different than Jesus himself. <clears throat> they mystically saw that, listen to this, Jesus is the union of human and divine in space-time, whereas the Christ is the eternal union of matter and spirit from the beginning of time. Roger Bacon had the courage and passion to love and serve the eternal Christ and not just the historical Jesus. Listen. Here's from the Cosmic Christ, week two. All right, ready? What most religion treats as separate, matter and spirit, humanity and divinity, has never been separate from its beginnings. Spirit is forever captured in matter, and matter is the place where spirit shows itself, capital S. Jesus, again, he says, Jesus is the union of human and divine in space and time, and the Christ is the eternal union of matter and spirit from the beginning of time, right? The divine essence in all things. In the beginning was the blueprint, and the blueprint was with God, and the blueprint was God. And all things came to be through this inner plan. The inner reality of God was about to become manifest in the outer world as the cosmic Christ. We might think of Christ as a mandala, a symbol of matter and spirit cohering in and beyond time. Listen to this. Christ is God manifest, both visible and invisible, darkness and light, bringing all things to greater life and love throughout eternity. Now, and here's the final one. This is from an article called The Cosmic Christ. Then we'll end this here on this quotation. And then uh, you guys can share your thoughts with me. Um, Most Christians know about Jesus of Nazareth, but very few know about the Christ. And even fewer were ever taught how to put the two together, which we're trying to do in these meditations. Obviously, meditation is how you put Jesus and the Christ together, right? I shouldn't mock. I'm sorry. Anyway. Many still seem, I'm being facetious, okay, many still seem to think that Christ is Jesus' last name. By proclaiming my faith in Jesus Christ, I have made two acts of faith, one in Jesus and another in Christ. The Christ is much bigger and older than either Jesus of Nazareth or the Christian religion because the Christ is wherever the material and the divine coexist, which is always and everywhere. I think we are all sad to admit that organized Christianity has often resisted and opposed the true coming of the cosmic Christ. The coming of the cosmic Christ is not the same as the growth of the Christian religion. It is the unification of all things. The Christ is God's active power inside the physical world. I feel like I heard 10 different definitions. I had thoughts and the (laughs) thoughts were... That's yeah. a Stephen quote. Yeah, um, <laughs> hey, he's been doing that all so week. You read a you read a lot, so I want us to I want all our audience to um, to track with us. Well, give us maybe in one sentence everything you just read. Okay, give us a nutshell. I think it could be summarized at the very bottom: the Christ is God's active power inside of the physical world. The Christ is the indwelling divinity of spirit within matter. 
And so this, matter itself so is in Christ speaks of the pantheistic side of God. Right. The Christ speaks of a universal spirit indwelling the material world as divine essence. Yeah. And then Jesus is the Jesus of the Gospels. Yeah. And then Jesus is just a man who, yeah, who came. you know, became Christ and came to embody that for us. Became Christ means that he was aware. Right, because this is not he, about... Right, he became aware because of Christ. It sounds in some sections that he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth, that the Christ is everything, everything in creation. That's exactly what it he says. Seems very, and I have no paradigm for a lot of Eastern mysticism, but I do have pop culture in my background, so Star Wars is about as close as I can get here. Uh, the force <laughs> the permeates force. and exists yeah. within all things That's and it. through all things, but they're only certain space wizards that are aware that that force exists and because they're aware of it they can shape and create that that that's a technical term too i think space Space wizards wizards. it's a technical term so yeah yeah you know it actually it makes sense to me why this is appealing to such a large number of people because he he had a little bit in there about organized religion and organized christianity and that's a catchphrase people it's a catchphrase that's kind of like you know we've all there's an a growing distrust of institutions in society. It includes the church. It also includes the government and education, like every institution. But the church is part of that. And everybody wants to be spiritual with their Jesus without, like, organized Christianity and really even historical Christianity and the understanding. And so it's like he starts with appealing to that desire for spirituality without the burden of institution and without the burden of church and the messiness of, like, church community as it's defined in the scripture, et cetera. So I can see that. But, uh, and, I, and I think what I would just compel our, our uh, listeners to pay attention to is he completely redefines what Christ is. Now, he's right to say Christ is not Jesus' last name, so we can agree on that. But Christ does have a meaning, and it means anointed one. And Israel expected a Christ to come. And that phrase anointed one appears in Psalm 2 in the Old Testament that they were uh, they were expecting a Christ to come, an anointed one to come, and uh, and that he was going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and such uh, and so on. And then the Christ was actually born into the world. And so we have this idea of an anointed one, a king like David was anointed with oil as a king that this Christ would come, a kingly figure uh, in the line of David. And so the way the scriptures speak about the Christ is 100% different than how he speaks of Christ. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He yeah, was buried and he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. If we're going to talk creedily here, um, he did not touch, in that quote that you read, did not touch on one essential Christian doctrine. Um, I didn't count them until you started reading them, and I tried to list them as quickly as I, I could creation has affected right all of creation has changed our anthropology has changed the identity of jesus has changed the second coming has changed that's right, right. that's because what he's second... twisting with those quotes yeah the, so, right. he, he, the, in a single paragraph he redefined all of christianity all of it it's not like one single mm-hmm. hey just, he just touched jesus right mm-hmm. that would have been egregious enough mm-hmm. but he you, you can't read any of the creeds and have any kind of historical context of how the creeds came into being and then call yourself christian um he knows the creeds. Right. He's Roman Catholic. I love if, that you said that because it's like um, there's a beauty to his prose. It's it's like it's like listening to poetry in the midst of like just plain old prose. That he just he's so eloquent, and yet he literally disassembled all that Christianity was in a single paragraph. Right. And pretends. I mean, not pretends. 
clearly deceives anyone with any level of edu- any anyone who, who didn't didn't know how the creeds have been formed, any of the history, and appeals to Origen and Irenaeus as if they agreed with him that Definitely Jesus was agree. some kind of like uh, just aware of his divinity. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm divine, you're divine, and I just I, the only difference between you and me is I'm aware of it. Yeah, and, Not and the, the creed that you quoted from First Corinthians fifteen, Christ First Corinthians fifteen three Come to four, on. it's the oldest historical creed right. that we have. They uh, they peg it to be within the first ten years after Jesus' life, That's death, right. and resurrection. Five. I can I can provide twelve quotes from scholars within five or less. Uh, yeah, I've I what I've read is that they typically will agree three to five within That's right. three to five years. That's right. But even the, the liberal, liberal God haters right. will say it's within ten years. Right. <laughs> and some of right. them will say three to five. Yeah. So the point is super super early mm-hmm. creed, mm-hmm. and it says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures which according to him isn't possible because jesus died on the cross right but christ is just the force right christ is the divine essence he's created this false dichotomy between jesus and the christ as though jesus isn't the christ per se there's jesus who died on a cross as an example of love and then right. there's, and I'm sure there's nothing there on atonement for him. And then there's Christos, which is the divine essence indwelling all of material reality everywhere at all times. So and how I, did the divine essence die on a cross and three days later rise again and get seen by 500 people? How, how, exactly, right? And so I would, I would, ch- I guess another objection we could splice into um, refutations of Christ consciousness would be a historical argument. Like, can you show me anywhere? Like, can you show me from the writings of Polycarp who quotes from the New Testament and was a disciple se- of John? Right, exactly. So Polycarp was trained under John, ordained a bishop of Smyrna. Yeah, by John himself. Hey, look at you acting like an Anglican up in here. Yeah, <laughs> and he quotes from 17 of the 27 New Testament books from the writings of his that we have and just Orthodox Christian teaching, if you read the Didache, if you read Ignatius, if you read some of the, Justin Martyr, mm-hmm. if you read some of these early church fathers, what they have to say about who Jesus was, who the Christ is, read their Christology. Like, search up like the Christology of Justin Martyr, the Christology of Ignatius or Polycarp. What does Richard Rohr know? And I don't want to be facetious. I don't want to pin it on him because I used to believe and teach this stuff too, right? No one says Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. Um, but I, I would challenge you, I'd, I'd offer press back. What they're implying is that they have greater insight into Jesus than those who walked with Jesus for three years yeah. and those who studied under them. So you have someone who, who lived and walked with Jesus for three years. James knew him his whole life. His brother, who came to be um, a powerful leader in the church, in the early church, and then was willing and was a martyr for the faith after not believing him in him priorly. Mm-hmm. Like, so you have the, the disciples are all in unison. Those whom they trained are all in unison. And then 2000 years later, someone comes and starts redefining all their terms to be like, this is what Jesus really meant. Let me fill in the gaps for you. Right. I would say, can you show me anywhere in early church history well, tied to the eyewitnesses or those whom they trained mm-hmm. th- that teach anything. Which is exactly yeah. what the early church fathers did to make sure nobody was if, – if a heresy was arising, they mm-hmm. would say, well, who are you? Like, where did this come from? It didn't come from the apostles, nor their disciples, nor even their disciples. It's a totally different branch. It can't be true. Yeah, right. but this this branch of Christianity also loosens it from its, its historical. historical root because um, – if everyone is Christ, then no one is, 
right? The model of Christ, the Christian faith is we have one Christ, one Lord, right? One mediator. Right. And because of that, we have great attention and focus on his teachings, what he believed and how he lived. Mm-hmm. But if everyone is Christ, then there's tons of ways to that same mountain. There mm-hmm. is no authority. There mm-hmm. is no central core Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the second that you believe the teaching, it presupposes fallibility within Christian scriptures. It kind of just tears the whole thing to oh, pieces. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, so if everyone is Christ, no one's Christ. Uh, and if no one's Christ, then there's a thousand different ways, right? So, so when we look at the, 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 the Old Testament talking about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of this anointed one who's going to set at liberty those who are captive Amen. to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord to, I'm going to butch the order of that scripture, okay. right? Recover sight back to the blind. Amen. Um, this Christ that is anointed that comes, um, it, it completely destroys all meaning to that. Mm-hmm. If we are all Christ, mm-hmm. if the bench, if the the video camera right here is Christ, because it is material suspended from something supernatural, it's just not aware of it. Yep. Uh, it destroys all meaning. The Christ is the divine essence within material reality and was incarnate 13.8 billion years ago at the Big Bang. Yeah. And... Um, it's something we all are intrinsically. And so speaking of the coming of the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, doesn't make any sense. What does second coming even mean? If the first coming right. is not Jesus coming, it's just some but, random guy who became aware, what does second coming even mean? They would probably say, and I don't want to hear what you're going to read in the scripture there, but I, I don't want to put words in Richard Rohr's mouth because I haven't read the Universal Christ. I'll say how those who teach this usually define second coming. They're talking about the second coming of Christ consciousness in the sense that the first coming of Jesus, well, some would say is an incarnation in, in material reality like Richard Rohr did, but Jesus came, exhibited Christ consciousness in the most unique, powerful way in human history and when he's speaking about the second coming what he's talking about is those who will realize Christ consciousness or God consciousness through the same path of enlightenment that he did so the second coming of Christ is something that's been happening for the last 2,000 years as people awaken to their divine nature so um, there's a whole book on this topic called the second coming of Christ consciousness by uh, um, I'm going to butcher his name it's a Middle Eastern or uh, Indian name sorry and uh, Eastern mystic Eckhart Tolle defines the second coming this way. Deepak Chopra defines the second coming this way. He probably will as well. The second coming is a reference to the church, which Barbara Marks Hubbard defines as those who are conscious of being Christ, right? So the church is those who are conscious of being Christ. And the second coming refers to the awakening of Christ consciousness which within is literally, each person. Which is, that, that means that no one was the church for at least 1,500 years. No one was teaching this. No one was believing that they were, they were the Messiah. They were the anointed no, one. You, they you, were the Christ. But but that's if, ridiculous. But if you look beneath the the uh, you know beneath the mainstream, underneath the thread of you know the mainstream narrative, you'll see these yeah. mystics who were you know despised by the church and kicked out for being you know liberal radicals. And these are the ones who really hit on the the right. the, the truth of yeah, the matter. Yeah, and the Earth is flat, and the Holocaust never happened, and and there's a, a secret group of knights that hid the the, the chalice of Jesus. Well, the, the, here's the yeah. thing. The reason I'm it's Jesus it's Jesus fault that I'm orthodox. Yeah. It's the disciples fault that I'm orthodox and Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and Ignatius fault because they could not be more clear that Christ is a synonym for Jesus of Nazareth. That's right. 
and that he died as a sacrifice and atonement for human sin that I might be forgiven of the penalty of my sin and reconcile with God eternally. Like, okay, he, the Bible could not be more clear. So forgive me for believing everything Jesus has ever said about himself or anyone who, know, who knew Jesus and walked with him ever said about him or anything those trained under the disciples ever said about him. You have to, you have to in, in, infer some conspiratorial narrative yeah. that lacks any historical history no chain of custody back to the time of the eyewitnesses and just create this completely um, novel narrative mm-hmm. that has no historical backing or exegetical support. Yeah. Um, you know, I, so many places to jump in, but one is when you were talking about if everybody's Christ and nobody's Christ, I just, I think what this really touches on for me as a, as a lover of Jesus is it actually grieves me that it takes away the unique place of the Son of God. That's right. As the one who, though being equal with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him above every name that can be named so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, that's a so that's Philippians chapter two, which was also essentially a creed in that day, more like a hymn, but uh, but sung in their day. He's quoting it, but that hymn itself that Paul quotes in Philippians two is actually an allusion to Isaiah forty five, around twenty three to twenty five, uh, and in there the Lord is saying, "I am Yahweh, and there is no other. No one and nothing can compare." to me and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so what Paul's saying in Philippians 2, he's saying Jesus is the incomparable Yahweh. Christ is. Yes. It actually uses the word Christ. Have the mind it was in Christ, though equal with God, right? So it, yes. it uses Jesus. Oh, yeah. there you go. It uses Christ as a synonym for Jesus mm-hmm. and says that he was Christ before the one who in, in history humbled himself. That's right. And yes. took on the form of a servant. And, yes. uh, or even think of, so. Jesus is Yahweh, the unique Yahweh yeah. that none can compare to. But according to Richard Rohr, that wall is Yahweh, and you are Yahweh, and Adolf Hitler is Yahweh by nature. And the sun is Yahweh, and yeah. the moon is Yahweh. Yeah, so, and there's varying degrees of like spiritual evolution. He would use the word people. Christ, yep. but he really means Yahweh just as well. And I'm going to beat Yahweh's the, the God breath within all things. Mm-hmm. I'll beat Michael to it because he's he's the revelation guy, right? So there is the Lamb and uh, the Father sitting on the throne. He's got a scroll in his hand in Revelation five. Who's worthy to open the scroll? All of us are now. We're all worthy. We're all worthy. We've all, as long as we can get that conscious awareness that we're God, right? We're the Christ. We're worthy, right? Yeah. Why is John weeping there? Why does that even make? Why is he weeping that no one in heaven on earth is worthy to open the scroll? None of the elders were. John wasn't. The apostle John, the beloved disciple. Well, surely he's had a Christ conscious experience, right? Well, apparently not. He just didn't recognize that he was. Bro, he I'm was actually about this. the lamb. I don't of God. like this at all. No, I know. And here's the thing: like in John one eighteen, in the Greek, the monogamous Theos, the only unique that's God, it. that's it, who's at the Father's side, has exegeted the Father, right? So he's unique in his position of deity. Of yeah, I got that from my buddy Brady today. Jesus is the exegete of the Father. I was like, dude, that sounds good. I like that. That works. <laughs> that works. Adding that to the quiver. Yeah, I'm adding that. Absolutely. Um, and my concern is, and we'll get into some proof text that they'll appeal to, 
um, in, in, in a sec, but, but like my concern is that, um, first of all, Jesus died for them, right? He, I believe he bore their sin. I don't believe, I believe Jesus loves them. He wants them saved. They're deceived and we should be praying for them. That should be our heart posture. Um, Bro, your you know, unlimited atonement showing. <laughs> Better head we should, up. we should, <laughs> my unlimited atonement showing. I'm on board with you on that. Yeah. I mean, I believe, you know, Jesus died, you know, even for those false prophets who deny the master who bought them. Hmm. You know, I'm sorry, but um, Ooh, I'm quoting from, Pe- I'm quoting from Peter. Ooh. But uh, anyway, so the point is like, I, we should have the hard posture as Christians that we hate what they're teaching. You know, can we have the same love Paul had for his lost Jewish brethren who was willing to forsake his own salvation to see them come to Christ, right? Yeah. Like, I want that to be my posture toward Marianne Williamson and Richard Rohr. It's easy for me to get really upset about them. Um, well, and but, for that matter, we're also we're appealing to those who are listening who may be caught in this, maybe right. picked up a Richard Rohr book and are starting to learn about Christ consciousness and starting to think about That's right. maybe I can meditate and get myself there. And, it'll be in the Christian book section. It'll be, yes, it'll be in the Christian book section of Barnes and Noble. And mm-hmm. we want to appeal to that person and say, this, this is a, a false teaching that will lead you a million miles yeah. from the true Christ. It's what I used to teach before I got saved. I used to teach this stuff verbatim. It's what Deepak Chopra teaches and Eckhart Tolle teaches. The only difference between a Richard Rohr and those guys is he knows how to disguise his Christology, anthropology, and um, theology in more Christianese than they do. Which is the reason we, we set the foundation of definitions and up his, front. Exactly. And his goal is to win Christians. So if we were to press him today, what he would do is he would try and I, I could be quoting these very severe statements he's making. Mm-hmm. And he would want to minimize that when pressed for the sake of winning over Christians. Right. And he'd want to appeal to origin for the sake of winning over Christians. And this is why we use such strong language at the beginning, because his his goal is to deceive. His his goal is to appeal to itching ears to heap up for himself a or following. Else maybe he's deceived. He he is deceived. No, I, but he's conveni- he's, he's conveniently deceived. He, he, conveniently. There's no way you read Irenaeus, any of the church fathers' origin, and walk away thinking that Jesus is one of many Christs to come. Or no the way. Gospels. Absolutely no, not. No. To, to say otherwise, to convince people that the church history is rich somehow with this kind of theology is a flat-out lie. It is and a lie. anyone in the Roman Catholic Church who is... Any of any level of education in the Roman Catholic Church knows that it's outright deception. It's a, a lie. Uh, now, so you talk. So you used to teach people New Age, mm-hmm. and you read what Richard Rohr's written about Christ consciousness, and you've listened to it, and you said this is exactly what there, I used it's to a, teach. It, so, it's a synonym. So let's look at the parallels. We've one of them we've hit on a lot is the pantheism thing. Mm-hmm. Another is that divine spark, finding the spark of divinity in you. What are some of the other things that stand out to you, or is it mainly those two? Um, it would be those two. So the universe is intrinsically divine, which is a way of saying God and nature are ontologically equivalent. Mm-hmm. They share the same fundamental nature. Um, that's a staple in New Ageism, um, that Christ is a synonym for the God essence within all things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we can all become Christ and graduate, if you will, through a journey into higher consciousness, through dissolving ego consciousness, like we talked about in the first one, to we can all realize the Christ within us as Jesus did. This is staple. We went through like 10 or 11 quotes in the first episode defining that. Um, and this is Richard Rohr, 
right? And then the last one, he says, we are the second coming of Christ. That, again, is staple New Age doctrine that I taught. The second coming of Christ happens in anyone in whom Christ consciousness has been awakened. But you see all throughout Scripture, you know, the second coming of Christ is described as a physical apocalyptic event. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I like in Acts, angels appear to the apostles looking up as Jesus ascends, right? Mm-hmm. And they show up and they say, why are you, you know, looking up? They're like, you know, he will descend in the same way he ascended. Mm-hmm. Physical, right? Inflaming fire, inflicting the vengeance upon return. his enemy. Yep. With his mighty angels, the sound of the trumpet will blow, mm-hmm. right? And so you see... You hear trumpets, you're going to have wailing and weeping upon his coming. You're having judgment Mm -hmm. of the world. You're having bloodshed, Revelation 19. Go read Revelation 19 if you want to know what the second coming is. Yeah, Battle of Armageddon. Second Thessalonians. Yeah, exactly. So all the markers of what the second coming is supposed to be are absent from this version of the second coming described by New Age teachers. But it sounds spiritual. And that's why it's attractive to people. It sounds mystical and spiritual. It's like I have that hidden knowledge now that's been, you know, veiled and now it's finally unveiled by, you know, these teachers of spiritual wisdom. And now I feel like I'm close to the Jesus of my childhood. I'm close enough to the truth where I feel that comfort and that assurance, but I don't have to be morally accountable to Jesus or surrender to his lordship, nor do I have to deny myself, pick up my cross and follow him. I can just redefine Jesus and Christ and that, that story yeah. when, when Peter is following Jesus at a distance, right? Um, and there's the, the the young lady who comes up to him and is asking him, hey, are you with Jesus? Are you with Jesus? He's he's walking just far enough to convince himself that he's still a follower, but just but also just far away enough not to feel convicted yeah. for the distance that he's at. Yeah. Um, so this is the the kind of space that, that people get trapped into um, because if you start redefining all the definitions, you can actually read the Bible yeah. and all of the Bible make uh, mean completely something completely different, which is exactly what the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses do. They come in and they change the initial definitions and the meanings. So every time that you read these words, it actually means something else. Yeah. And like so I said, I used to, I used to yeah. teach this. Very so this is, I'm speaking to my former self, right? It's like any zip or zeal I have, it's probably coming from like leftover frustrations against myself for like, dude, if you just read the gospels, <laughs> you would have been if better. If you just off. read the New Testament, like yeah. you would have had a lot of questions answered. So yeah. again, I want to have grace and patience with everyone and if there's anyone listening who's in the new age or who is struggling understanding Christ or Christ consciousness, like like we want to see you come to Christ, like we love you. We care about you. We're not above deception. I'm Absolutely. not above deception. Amen. But the point is is like the most important question, like Jesus tells us our eternal salvation and eternal destiny hinges upon what we think about him. That's pretty profound, right? Like eternity itself depends upon do we believe Jesus is Lord in the way he says. Eternal life is to know Mm -hmm. God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Right. Right. Just because you use the words Jesus and Christ, Mm -hmm. that doesn't make you a Christian. That's right. Because lots of fault. I mean, Jesus himself says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So you can call Jesus your Lord and and not enter the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus. Right. So it's important we believe right things <clears throat> about Jesus. Now, I loved your appeal to the New Agers, and I think you're continuing to come back to that posture that we want to have, which is we're going to take forceful stands and at the same time make sure we, we want to actually appeal to people mm-hmm. uh, because I know that New Age uh, New Agers or people kind of dabbling in the Christ consciousness world are, are 
uh, viewing this right now. Mm-hmm. So, Stephen, I want to come to your own story. You walked in th- this deception for a while. Mm-hmm. You certainly must have found some fulfillment in it because you kept doing it for some time. Mm-hmm. So speak to those who maybe they've started reading a Richard War book or something like it, mm-hmm. and they've started to experience, like, they feel like, man, the light mm-hmm. bulbs have gone off. That's right. I see the truth now. Like, mm-hmm. I, I feel enlightened. And when I meditate, I feel more connected with Jesus than I ever did in that podunk Baptist church or non-denominational church or whatever it was. Like, like how can I just write off this fulfillment that I have now that I wasn't getting an institutional Christianity? Yeah, I would say that um, we can have um, a false sense of fulfillment by reading theological implications into experiences that don't necessarily indicate the conclusions we think they do. And what I mean by that is like, okay, let's say I go meditate in the forest for two hours or an hour, which is, you're going to come out feeling weird. You're going to come out feeling different, right? You're probably going to feel more expansive, more spacious, right? You're going to have this spaciousness open up in you and like, wow, man, there's peace. I feel like I'm kind of unified. Like your brain waves have changed at that point. And you're going to start feeling like, wow, this feels really good. You know, I feel unified with creation. I feel like I know myself better. Maybe this is what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of God is within you. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's referring to that dimension of beingness, that dimension of pure consciousness. Maybe that's the kingdom of God as they teach us. And that's not what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God is in your midst. And we'll get into that. But the point is, you have this experience my first appeal would be, are you really justified in making those theological and Christological conclusions from those experiences? Or can we just stop at you feel more spacious and you feel like you've had some experience of self-transcendence? Mm-hmm. Okay, what do we do with that? What bucket do we put that in? If God's a personal being outside of space and time and he, he can be known personally as a father and he has a mind, a will, he speaks if I'm down here dropping five grams of psilocybin mushroom me- mushrooms meditating in a forest or spinning around in a chair to try and alter my consciousness and God's a living person, he's, what are you doing? Like, just talk to me. Like, come to me. Like, why are you trying to alter your consciousness, right? As though I'm in there somewhere, right? So I, something Sam Harris has said that I like is that meditation doesn't even tell you you have a brain, let alone that God exists outside of space and time. Mm-hmm. Like I can't go in a cave anywhere and find out anything about my own brain, let alone the one who authored it. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a reason why Buddhism is an atheistic religion, right? They're not making these kinds of appeals and deductions and they probably meditated more than anybody, any other kind of religion. Right. And so my quest first appeal would be like, are you really justified in making those theological and Christological deductions from the experiences you are having. And my second would be, is it possible that some of those impressions and thought forms that, are, that seem to be implicit in altered states of consciousness and self-transcendence, could they be coming from outside sources, right? Is it possible? I mean, New Agers believe that there are trickster entities in the spirit realm who can deceive us, who do deceive us. They have different names for them. Hindus believed in demonic type beings, so did Buddhists. Every religion virtually believed in some kind of demonic-like entities. My question is, you know, humor me for a second. 
If Jesus is who he claimed to be, the only path to God, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, a sacrifice for human sin, we're saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus alone, would it not be very um, convincing of a spirit or power who is opposed to the cross, whose purpose is to deceive you away from that truth, to give you an experiential confirmation of a different worldview? Right? Can, could a demon make you feel as though a certain worldview narrative you're studying is true by providing you an internal experience that seems to correspond to and confirm the worldview claims you're entertaining? And that's what's happening, right? So people, people will start studying X, Y, and Z about the universe or about the self. They go meditate for an hour and they come out feeling as though they have direct experiential confirmation of things like reincarnation. I know reincarnation is true from experience. Or are you studying things and practicing things? I would be, you know, are you practicing things? The Bible says transgress God's commandments and are dangerous and open you up to other forces. And are they providing those thought forms and those impressions and bringing those to life in you? Hebrews 9, 27, it's been appointed unto each man to live once. And after that comes the judgment. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, and the Bible's true, you can't be having an experiential confirmation of reincarnation. But they would swear to the death that they do. So I want to say, I want to I want to legitimize those experiences, but say that they're coming from a different source sometimes. And from other times when they're coming from natural means of just altering your consciousness through brainwave alteration, we're making theological and Christological deductions we're not justified in making. And so those are two different buckets I would put them in. Yeah. Um, and I would say that the answers you're looking for, obviously, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in the person of Christ. Come to him as you are. You don't have to alter your consciousness. He's a person. You're a person. And all the spiritual understanding you're craving is satisfied in a living yeah. relationship with him. You know, one thing I, I love about what you're saying is when I look at your own story, you actually were saved by an encounter with Jesus Christ. Like you actually did have an experience. So a, a skeptic might say, oh, but look, you had an experience. I had an experience. Mine pointed me to new age or Christ consciousness. Yours pointed me to Christ. But like you had that experience, but it was also rooted in, of course, what we call orthodoxy. But let's just call it a spirituality that goes back thousands of years in a historic tradition that's way, way bigger than ourselves. And so I, I think that would be like another difference to me is that like you're not invalidating experiences wholesale. No. You're simply saying experience by itself isn't enough to tell you. No. What to what to decide about major theological things. Right. Your experience led you to Christ, but then you put your nose in the Bible. Right. And then you, and then you, uh, you looked back at what is the historic faith through Calvin and Augustine and, uh, and Irenaeus and so on. And it's this steady stream that Richard Rohr is trying to pick off, like this little guy, this guy here, this guy there. They may have made this one comment or that one comment that maybe if you twist it can support what I'm saying. Right. That's entirely different well, from your and, experience. Yeah. It's not just, it, it's not just the 
uh, theological historical background of Christianity that you're rooted in, you, the the Christian faith makes gives room, gives answers to things I would imagine the New Age can't, like a justifiable standard of morality, uh, the uniformity in the laws of nature, like the the the, the cosmological arguments, the arguments for uh, our existence actually mm-hmm. make sense within a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not only no. that um, the Christian worldview makes sense of an experience the Christian world, you make sense of everything. Right. So there's two articles on my website, reasonsforjesus.com. One is called Three Big Reasons to Believe God Exists, where I go over the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and the moral argument for God's existence, which if successful, in which they are, give us a personal, transcendent, powerful, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, perfectly good creator of all of space-time reality. And pantheism can't account for that that's right pantheism can't account for the universe having an absolute beginning a finite time ago and there being a set of conditions and constants present within the first instant of creation that allowed for chemistry and matter to exist let alone intelligent life it can't account for there being this realm that we apprehend of objective moral values and duties that seem to point to a, a lawgiver and a subscription of a certain set of moral truths independent of human opinion. Mm-hmm. But I would say also, you know, I don't want to just talk about God. Like, let's talk about Jesus, right? There's an article I have on my website um, by a, a guest author named James, named James Bishop, and it's a phenomenal article he wrote. It's called He is Risen historical evidence Jesus rose from the dead, right? And there could be a whole episode. You guys could have someone much more qualified like a Mike Lacona or Gary Habermas on to talk about that. Or like a, like a Justin Bass. We could have someone like Justin Bass Oh, yeah, Bass yeah, 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 that's right. You yeah. talked about that recently. Yeah. You're right. Go back and watch our episode with Justin Bass. <laughs> right, okay, amen. Shameless plug. Right. So basically you have, like, you have the historical facts of the crucifixion of Jesus, which yeah. every historian agrees with. Um, you have 12 independent ancient sources of the crucifixion. Bart Ehrman calls it the most certain fact in ancient history. Um, Gerd Ludemann, an atheist historian at the University of Göttingen in Germany, calls it an indisputable fact. He's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The empty tomb, you have maybe three-quarters of scholars, two-thirds to three-quarters of all New Testament scholars, whether Jewish, atheist, or Christian, believe that the tomb was found empty by a group of Jesus women followers. But 99% of all New Testament scholars agree that shortly after the death of Jesus, the disciples had experiences that caused them to believe Jesus had risen and appeared to them. Not just once, but many times, indoors and outdoors, to groups and individuals there wasn't like mood lighting and special music and soaking <laughs> to like no Michael no. Bolton music no to <laughs> soaking to no. Michael Bolton no <laughs> right no no to skeptics to skeptics right <laughs> to to skeptics to skeptics and to believers yeah. so basically even if we want to say like so basically okay we have to have a historically viable explication of what Jesus has to say about himself as the sacrifice for sin, the ransom for human sin, Mark ten forty five, his blood being the blood of the new covenant, him being the unique Messiah, the only begotten son of God. We need 
an honest answer in wrestling with why did Jesus make these claims about himself and say eternal life hinges upon us believing on him and trusting on him for salvation, right? No man comes to the Father except through me. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe is condemned. John the Baptist says, if you believe, you'll be saved in John 3. But whoever doesn't believe, the wrath of God abides on him. Like, we need to wrestle with these texts. But also, why do we have the disciples having experiences of what they believe to be Jesus, not just a vision of him or an apparition or a ghost, him risen from the dead? Why would merely seeing Jesus cause them to believe he rose from the dead? Seeing someone usually confirms their death. Right. So like I see a ghost. A spirit. Yeah. It confirms that they have died. So I, I saw their ghost today, right? Like in, uh, in Acts, when Peter gets let out of prison miraculously and he goes and knocks on, is it Martha or something? I forget who he knocks on their door. It's his ghost. He must have died and now his ghost is coming. His spirit has come up to, you know, whatever, mess with us or something. Versus he's bodily risen in the flesh from the very grave he was buried in. Why did they come to believe that on the basis of these appearances they had, which there's a dozen different appearances listed in the gospel. So basically, we have to wrestle with the evidence and be exegetically honest with with what Jesus says about himself, with the evidence, and with the implications of those two things working in tandem. Because the resurrection would be nothing less than God's stamp of divine approval. and if I could, could I add something else? Because right. you also have to contend with the fact that like the idea of resurrection didn't exist in the pagan world. Like yes. it didn't exist in the pagan world. I mean, they'd have people coming back to life-ish, but it'd be more like a spiritual thing or a ghost visitation type of idea. The idea of literally undoing death. I mean, N.T. Wright has a like 500-page book on it or something. I've read it, and it goes through all the history of pagan beliefs. I have too. And it's really good. It is good. And um, and it's like that didn't exist. And and the word resurrection means bodies. It, it means physical bodies, not hallucinations, not I saw a ghost, not any of this. And it's like the gospel writers are going out of their way, like, touch my skin, you know, the Luke. whole, like, I am not a ghost. And so, like... He's eating, eating fish, fish. Yeah, all of yeah, this yeah, kind yeah, of exactly. stuff. So it's like it's going out of his way to try. But but then the other, th- you know, even amongst the Jews, you had a debate. You had the Sadducees and you had the uh, the Pharisees. Pharisees and Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection and the Jews did. That's because, why they were sad, you see. <laughs> that's why they were sad, you see. I was like, let's see what you did. <laughs> Literally been okay. So you had this debate. Like it, it wasn't even universal amongst like no. Jewish believers right. that resurrection was a thing. They tended to think like, oh, well, you know, our progeny will kind of carry on our name after us. And it, it, there was it, there was debate, mm-hmm. right? And uh, not only did it suddenly become a thing, every Christian believed in resurrection. So yeah. out of the blue, you have to explain that. But number two, nobody believed that, like, even if they did believe in a resurrection, they believed it happened at the last day. Mm-hmm. Nobody believed one dude would raise from the dead ahead of everyone else. Yep. Like what the Bible calls the first fruits, firstborn from the dead. Right. Bodily life after so life, not all, just life all after of this, life. Like, you have to account for the fact that there was a massive global movement that took over the Roman Empire based upon a belief that was absolutely non-existent. Prior, Based upon not just an ideology or belief, but based upon people's eyewitness testimony that we have seen him and we cannot help but speak about that which we saw. People die for an ideology all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Islam extremists, Jihad, Muslim, yeah. yeah, exactly. They do, they do all the time. They weren't dying for a worldview claim or a set of beliefs. They were dying for the belief that Jesus had bodily risen from the dead as Lord and had appeared to them physically. If they had fabricated that, no one dies for something they right. fabricated. Okay, I so know. now let's circle this back circle to Christ's back. consciousness and new age. Okay, yeah, that, that's what I was going to You mentioned Luke 17, and that was how I want to circle it back because you said we need to wrestle with these exegetical claims. So let's wrestle with some of the exegetical passages that have been taken out of context, like Luke right. 17, the kingdom of God is in you or among you or in your midst. Right. How do Christians understand this passage in a historic way? Right. Yeah. Good question. Yes, yeah, so that would be the first proof text. And just to kind of bow tie the purpose of what we talked about, we talked about, you know, New Agers have these experiences. Let's, I would say, you know, can you really make those theological and Christological deductions from those experiences? Like, okay, meditating in a forest somewhere doesn't tell you what, doesn't tell me what you ate for breakfast 20 years ago. Doesn't tell me what a historical man named Jesus of Nazareth said 2,000 years ago either doesn't tell me about history, right? right? So I would say we can't make those kinds of claims and assume that the experiences we're having are somehow about a historical man 2,000 years ago. That's a conclusion we can't deduce. And I would furthermore say that some of this experiential confirmation is provided by external forces, other spirits projecting thought forms and epiphanies into us, dropping things into our spirit as even New Agers will claim they're able to do, trickster spirits and so forth, in varying capacities. And then thirdly, even if you want to affirm a New Age modality, you're still left with all these unanswered questions about the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus against the backdrops of, of his self-concept and the claims he made about himself, which need to be wrestled with because that's what we're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to Luke 17, there's a verse Jesus says here. I'm going to read from the King James Version um, because this is the oh, one they quote, because this is the only one they can quote from. Oh, Luke. so oh. someone's not new in KG so only. The modern translations don't give them the ammunition they need to to jump no. on this verse as having anything to do with New Age. Not, but none. the King James sounds a little New Agey to them in this verse. Jimmy the, letting us down. Right. So it says. And when he demanded of the Pharisees, or sorry, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Luke 17, 20 verses, uh, sorry, Luke 17, 20 to 21. So first of all, my first response to that would be Jesus never said that. Um, you have the King James Version and the New King James Version that will say that, but with the manuscripts that we've since discovered from after the earlier. translation, yeah, the earlier manuscripts tell us that the way people who have those manuscripts translate this word entos in the Greek, it can mean, mean a variety of things. It can mean within you, but it can also mean in the, the vicinity of or in the midst of. So... The majority of English Bible translations and the best English translations that we have available, community translations by world-renowned scholars, um, such committee translations, I should say, like the ESV, the NASB, um, the NIV, the RSV, the New Living Translation, the Christian Standard Bible, um, ESV and NASB, any scholar, any, any seminary professor, they put those like top two out of the top three translations available right now. The most 
translations we have and the best translations we have do not say that. So immediately they're coming at the gate appealing to like a, a small handful of translations. That's be my first press back is Jesus probably didn't say that. Um, the ones who he said this to, though, let's keep in mind, who is he talking to? He's not talking to his disciples. And that's mm-hmm. a big red flag here. He's talking to the Pharisees, which should tell us the way in which he intends this to be received by us as his listen- as the listener. The Pharisees, whom he sent this to, he called them blind in Matthew 23, verse 16, fools, Matthew 23, 17, full of dead man's bones and uncleanness, Matthew 23, 27, serpents and a generation of vipers, Matthew 22, 33, hypocrites, Luke eleven forty four. He said they were damned to hell, Matthew 22, 33, that their father, their spiritual father is the devil, John eight forty four. And that they were children of hell, Matthew 23, verse 15. So his target audience for those whom he said are children of hell, damned to hell, whose spiritual father is the devil, whom are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So is he saying that the kingdom of God is present within spiritually dead children of hell, children of Satan, damned to hell? Is that what he's trying to communicate to us? That it's this dormant spiritual realm present within? Oh, well, they weren't – oh, well, well, the Pharisees, they, they did have the kingdom of God dwelling within them, even though Jesus explicitly told them they didn't. They were devoid of like, all is he trying cleanness. to go against everything he said to say, uh, but she actually has the kingdom. Yeah, no, you got the in- indwelling kingdom, but you're full of uncleanness and need, dead man's bones. You just need to be conscious of it. That That's right. <laughs> even though you're, fear- but he's been overtly trying to make them conscious of a very different reality. Right. So even though you're void of spiritual life, and are proving by your voidness of spiritual life, whom your spiritual source is, you're actually at the same time full of spiritual life, and your spiritual source is God. It doesn't. No. Make sense. And I would say that the Bible specifically is written, especially the New Testament, is written on the premise that the kingdom of God does not intw- intrinsically dwell within us. And these verses make it very clear if Jesus um, uh, um, rebuke against his target audience in this verse isn't clear enough, these verses should make it clear to us. And I appeal to these quite often um, in discussions with those who are sympathetic to Christ's consciousness because they're just so clear. So man is separated from God relationally and ontologically devoid of his presence from birth. Alienated from God, Colossians 1.21. Ephesians 4.18, alienated from the life of God. How can the life of God dwell in me, but me be be alienated from that life at the same time? Jude 19, devoid of the spirit of God. Isaiah 59.2, separated from God. Ephesians 5.8, the unsaved, the unregenerate are themselves darkness. Matthew 4.16, they dwell in darkness. John 8.12, they walk in darkness. John 12, 46, they remain in darkness. Luke 1, 79, they live in darkness in the shadow of death. Psalm 9, 20, they're mere men. Isaiah 31, 3, they're not God. So all throughout scripture, you see this thread where we're told the natural, the unregenerate man, I should say, is alienated from the spiritual life of God and devoid of the spirit. You couldn't be more explicit in that. So Jesus is not talking about some indwelling kingdom that's intrinsically present within every man dormantly that needs to be awakened through accessing higher consciousness through eastern practices of mindfulness you're alienated from everything of god without god without hope in the world there's many more we could list 
alienated from his spiritual life, dead in sins, devoid of the spirit, and his target audience, if there's any doubt about these verses, his target audience should make it clear to us what he's really trying to say here. Um, so We have a record of Jesus saying that, um, you know, that the kingdom of God has come upon you by the finger of God to cast out demons, right? Sure. So Jesus is talking about himself, that That's he's right. preaching the kingdom, he's declaring the kingdom. When right. he has come, that's the inbreaking of the kingdom. That's right. And when he shows up, there's power. The kingdom's power is present. That's right. So when he's saying the kingdom is in your midst. The king is here. He's here. I'm I'm that guy. That's I'm right. the guy. I've I've got the kingdom with me because where I am is where the kingdom is. Right. So so uh, the, the state theologically, again, within context, the kingdom of God is in your midst is, is I'm present with you. Sure. You'd yeah. be able to word this better than me, but I would probably, would we be able to say when Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst, what he means is I am the beginning point of the inauguration of the prophesied eschatological kingdom of the God. Oh, uh, that's absolutely right. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, book of Daniel especially talked about this, this kingdom that's going to come, this kingdom that's going to come and the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, you got Daniel 2, you got Daniel 7, and there's there's going to be this kingdom that takes over the world, essentially. This kingdom, and of his peace there will be no end. Right, and so during the Second Temple period, that, that where, you know, they're handed over to the, uh, from the Persian, Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks, and there's just like oppression, oppression, there's this deep longing, oh Lord, let your kingdom come, and Jesus comes into this environment where prophets have been saying the kingdom's coming the kingdom's coming and then john the baptist steps on the scene as the forerunner and says the kingdom's here and then jesus is like yeah 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 the kingdom's here (laughs) repent and that's how you enter it not become conscious that you're god not become conscious that you're christ but actually repent that you you're sucking at following God, yeah. right? Repent that you are totally. <laughs> you depraved. suck at even being human. There's no chance you're God. You I was suck about to at say even you being suck, human. But God wouldn't say that. Okay, but like <laughs> sounds like a Mark Driscoll sermon. <laughs> I know, I know, but it is very different. Whereas the New Age is saying, "Find your inner awesomeness." It's such a different message. Like we do both have we have meditation. You know, New Age has meditation. Christians have meditation. New Age. It sounds like you're more experienced in it than I am. <laughs> Meditate on how awesome you are. And Christianity is meditate on the transcendent God. Right. Well, it's completely it would be other. Abs- um, empty your mind empty of content. Your mind, yeah. And Christian meditation would be like David says, I dwell on your deeds. I dwell on your works. You fill yourself I, with God. I meditate right. on your law. I meditate on your wondrous deeds. So he's the, the word in Hebrew literally means to be consumed with thought, consumed with mental content. And I'm not trying to think as fast as I can about a bunch of things. But the point is, I'm I'm in a state of ponderance. That's but what David's that, talking how about. How does that work in New Age when you you're emptying emptying your mind of thought? Mm-hmm. How does emptying you of thought at the same time make you conscious that you're Christ? Isn't that seems opposed to me? Sure. So they they will say that, and and so they will say that your ego mind, your personal sense of self, is wrapped up in your stream of thinking. Like I'm. I am a and, and titles and forms and so forth. So, you know, Michael Roundtree is a pastor. He's 38 years old, whatever, 39. I'm this tall. I have this background. Here's my history. This is my um, last name and where it comes from. Here are my beliefs and practices and so forth. And uh, a new age teacher would want to say, you're aware of all that, right? So if, if you can become aware of it, it's not you. Mm-hmm. So you are the awareness behind the identity of Michael Roundtree. 
So beneath the identity and the thought form of Michael Roundtree in your mind, there's a dimension of pure awareness, right? And as you begin to rest as the observer of the thoughts, instead of being identified and consumed with the stream of thinking going through your mind, you start to access and open up this dimension of like formlessness and just pure consciousness, pure awareness. And that dimension you begin to access of pure awareness is the kingdom of God. There's this spaciousness that opens up, this state of pure beingness, and the personal sense of self becomes revealed as illusory and transient, and you become less and less identified with that, and you begin to discover that which is already within you, mm-hmm. pure beingness, pure consciousness, and that same consciousness within you, that's that, that field that you're existing as, is the field of universal consciousness that permeates all things. You're beginning to tap into that a little bit closer, right? And you're accessing that, that, um, that, that, that divine uh, um, spark. Spark, we could call it, like that piece mm-hmm. of the divine that's within you, existing as formlessness, consciousness. It's your your conscious, yeah. your ego Such is good... preventing yourself from being aware that you are divine. But I'm I'm almost curious how how could this have even been discovered. Like, because you have to know it. I would say through demons. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just saying, like, if you were going to press a, a logical person on this, like, you have to use your conscious mind to come to this truth, right? So you're saying you have to empty your ego to discover it, and then you have to bring it to your ego to explain it. Right. But, How does that even make but sense? In, in describing it, you have to use inference and deduction but it's not something that like as soon as you start describing it you're losing it exactly right so the point is it's something you experience and discover in silence and in stillness when you explicate it you can only describe you only point people to it but they have to get in there and discover it for themselves and through transcendental meditation which makes sense why it's so sneaky is because it's not it's not you can't argue it because you're arguing through an ego sense and they're being told that the ego is incorrect if you're still arguing it you you don't have it yet out of it yeah. Yep. Okay. So well, if you have any pro- objections to this, it's because you're still operating from the ego mind and, and you need to get outside the realm of form. It's that same rooted anti-intellectualism right. so, we talk about. Right. Sure. So they're trying to say, you know, through this meditational process, you could discover, discover the fact that the kingdom is in you mm-hmm. based on a Luke 17 text they might use to communicate Christ consciousness. The kingdom mm-hmm. is in your midst, King James. Okay. But to come back to your question about the kingdom... The prophets foretold one day a kingdom was coming and a king was coming who would mm-hmm. oversee that kingdom. Jesus announces, here I am, guys. If you want if you want me, you've got to repent of your sins. Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe the gospel. And so New Age has created a new way of getting there. Instead of repenting and believing, repenting of our own sins and depravity mm-hmm. and believing that he is the Christ, mm-hmm. not me, but him, right. So he, he lays the groundwork, repent and believe, then I experience the reign of God in my life. The kingdom comes upon me, right? right? So that's what he's saying. And so as a Christian, I would say the kingdom is here in the sense that the king of heaven actually invaded earth like the allied forces invaded Normandy. And he got a foothold on planet Earth through his life, death, and resurrection. Mm-hmm. That's what we call D-Day in right. America. And, uh, and V-Day, 
that's the kind of space in between um, when America essentially sealed the victory. World War II was essentially won. Germany was about to go down. We got our, our foothold on the European continent. And yet the battle was still waging. And so we still have a battle between two kingdoms, that of darkness and that of light. And so the second advent when Jesus returns would be our V-Day when Jesus returns and and uh, every wrong thing is made right. Right. So, so like in America, we have um, uh, July 4th, the day that the Declaration of Independence was signed, but that was not the day that the last shot was fired. Right. So in a sense, the battle is won. We celebrate the victory on Independence Day because mm-hmm. that was the day that we decided we would be free, not the day that we actually had freedom. Uh, so Christ has, in a sense, given us victory and freedom from our sin, but the absolute freedom from sin and the absolute destruction of death has not yet come. So just right. echoing that same yeah. illustration in a different but, way. But all of this, what it's showing is that kingdom has to be put into a historical framework. That's right. It's not merely an experiential framework. That doesn't right. mean it's less than, uh, it, that doesn't mean it's not experiential. Mm-hmm. Jesus will say in Matthew 12, 28, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, so somebody experiences the reign of Christ over their bodies, over their person, when Jesus cast a demon out. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the kingdom has come upon that person. They've experienced the reign. Of the, certainly the kingdom is in their midst when Jesus cast that demon out. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the kingdom's here. So there's an experience attached to it, but we can't separate kingdom from what Jesus did in history to inaugurate his kingdom in a way that pre-Christ they could only look look for and long for as right. their prophets articulate. Are there are there other proof texts? Yeah, we'll go over other proof texts. Yeah, yeah. Check this out. And so that kingdom would first would be the biblical understanding of the kingdom of God versus mm-hmm. everything is divine presence. Mm-hmm. We are divine presence. Mm-hmm. And that dimension of divine presence within us, deeper within us than our ego mind, is the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Right, everything's divine presence. That divine presence is within me, as me, and to access that is to live in and through the kingdom of God mm-hmm. that exists dormantly within me, as this dimension and realm of divine presence that I've had from birth. Here's another proof text that they like to use, um, that I used to use. I used to use this in debates with my parents, straight up. Uh, so silly. At when the you time were new age. when I was a new age, yeah. Um, is it not is John 10 verses 31 to 36 um, is really the passage we're just going to be the first few verses here is it not written in your law I said you are God's if he Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees who are pressing him about his claim to be the son of God and they're saying it's blasphemy for you to say that you're the son of God he goes, he goes is it not written in your law I said you are God's if he called them God's to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So he's referencing Psalm 82 verse 6 here. And I want to read Psalm 82 verses 1 to 8 to give context to the passage Jesus is referencing. Because people will quote this. Deepak Chopra will quote this. There it is right there in the text. Jesus said you are God's. Is it not written you are God's? If we're all divine, how can you say I'm blaspheming for saying I'm the Son of God? Right? You're all divine. Doesn't even the Old Testament say you're all divine? So why are you saying I'm blaspheming by saying I'm the son of God when even Yahweh says you're divine? Verses, here's what it actually says in Psalm 82, 
verses 1 to 8. Here's what it actually says <laughs> in, in Psalm 82, verses 1 to 8. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Say law. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die, and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So in verses 2, 3, and 4, God is telling them to do a better job restoring justice on earth, right? Judge justly, give justice to the weak, maintain the right of the afflicted. These are not things the average common man can do. These are the functions and roles of magistrates, judges, and kings, which have a long history in the Old Testament. What comes to mind in particular is Exodus 18, when Moses is trying to handle disputes Mm -hmm. among the people of God. I believe it's his grandfather. Basically says, you're going to burn yourself out. You need to elect people to do this for you. And the people whom Moses ends up electing get ascribed the title Elohim, which is the word used here in, in Hebrew. Um, but I want to, when we get into that, because that's really important, but God rebukes judges in the very same way he does here in Isaiah 3, 13 to 15, Isaiah 3, 24 to 26, Micah 3, 9 to 12, and Psalm 58, where it says, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. We're talking about positions of authority within earthly dealings. The average person does not qualify for these kinds of things. So we're not talking about every single human being. The ones whom are called gods as a starting point, they're ones who are in position to enforce the law of God amongst his people. So this is this, it's not a reference to all men. It's a reference to judges, and not just judges, judges in Israel, judges who are acting in Yahweh's place to whom the word of God, the word of God did not come to every single pagan person. The word of God came through Israel, and those are the ones whom he is rebuking and admonishing, the ones who were mishandling that in their execution of positions of authority using the law of God over the common man. So we don't, if you're not a judge in Israel, you don't qualify. But why are they called gods? Why, why are they called Elohim, which is used two, over 2,000 times in Scripture, most often to refer to God? In Isaiah, uh, Exodus 21, verse 6, and this is interesting. I was really um, surprised to see this in my studying of this passage. It says this in Isaiah 21, verse 6. But if this, he's talking about how, um, you know, owners or masters are to handle their bond, bond servants or, or dealings mm-hmm. with slaves during that time. But if the slave says, I'm reading from the ESV, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then the master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the the doorpost. So God shall bring the man, the slave, to the door of the doorpost. In the King James Version, New King James Christian Standard, NET, NIV, it actually translates the word God there, Elohim, to judges. Because it's referencing these earthly judges that Moses elected a few chapters earlier in Exodus chapter 18. 
in Exodus 22, verses 8 and 9, and verses 28, these are three other passages where Elohim is used to refer to these human judges acting in God's place. In some translations, it'll say God. In others, it'll say judges, but it's clearly referencing human judges. Here's Exodus 22, verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before Elohim, shall come before God in some translations, or judges in others. The one whom Elohim condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So here's a quote I like by John Calvin. He'll summarize this nicely. Scripture gives the name of God's to those on whom God has conferred an honorable office. The passage which Christ quotes is in Psalm 82, 6, I have said you are God's, all of you are children of the Most High, where God expostulates with the kings and judges of the earth who tyrannically abuse their authority and power for their own sinful passions for oppressing the poor and for every evil action. So this term, Elohim, while it's most often used to refer to Yahweh himself, it's used mythopoetically here to refer to human judges. Why? Because they have the quasi-divine role of enforcing and representing, uh, representing God's moral law and enforcing it among his people. So it's a pseudo-divine role, mythopoetic reference, calling them Elohim, human judges, four passages talking about that in Exodus. So these are the ones whom Jesus is referring back to who are referenced in Psalm 82 was these judges God had appointed to begin abusing their power tyrannically, and God rebuked them all throughout the Old Testament. Michael Heiser will take a different interpretation of this and saying it's a reference to um, divine beings, the divine counsel that God has uh, appointed over pagan nations to kind of oversee them. Yahweh chose Israel as his portion. They became corrupt and started soliciting worship. Maybe you can expound upon that. Sure. But this one, I, I prefer this one for a variety of reasons. I'm not even going to pretend don't, I'm qualified. Don't let see this episode, dude. He wrote no. the forward for your book, didn't he? He did. But What's he going to say to this, well, man? We presented this one and Heiser's one thoroughly but in the honestly, book. But honestly, they both, whichever side you take, it doesn't fit New Age. No. No. And that's what I, that was my only question because we don't we don't want to get tangent onto let's describe the angelic view here. Mm-mm. I don't want to do that because that, that's not to. necessarily on the point. But let's just pretend mm-hmm. that Heiser's right. Let's pretend that Psalms eighty two um, is about the divine council scene. There are angelic beings that are enthroned that are ruling with God, and Jesus is speaking to uh, the Pharisees here, and he's saying, "Hey guys, don't the scriptures say that you are gods? How does that?" Makes sense. Does that still? Does that still kind of? Uh, can that still be used in this kind of apologetic uh, with people who have a world, uh, a new age worldview? No, because again, he's referencing. If if Mike Heiser's right, he's referencing a class of divine beings whom, in Psalm eighty nine, is said to exist in the clouds. The divine council exists in the clouds in Psalm eighty nine. Mm-hmm. So if Mike Heiser's interpretation is right, unless you exist in the clouds, as a administrative divine being of Yahweh, you don't qualify. So how does that make sense with the text? Because that's that's something that's confused me, because I'm inclined to agree with you just because it makes sense of the text. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's a divine council scene, and he says, doesn't the scripture, like, you're saying that I'm God. Like, why does that bug you? Sure. Doesn't the Bible say that there's lots of gods in heaven? He goes, you are gods. He seems like he's speaking to them. Right. And saying, you are these divine beings in heaven. I can read I have a little paragraph here from, yeah, go ahead. from Heiser. Yeah, let's do yes, it. Yes, do okay. the Heiser passage. That would right. be the great thing. Sure. Um, 
He says, oh, man, I was right there. Okay, here it is. Okay, so this is Heiser's view. Um, Okay, so let's, you know, some of our... Some of our viewers are super familiar with the work of Heiser and the Sons of God argument and all of this. Others have no grid for this at all. Let me just read the passage. His work's great, by the way. The Unseen Realm, it's like it'll take you places. It's good stuff. <laughs> it'll take you places. Not not like third heaven not spaces. Like no, consciousness yeah. places. Not, not like so, spirit travel right, places. So John 10, Jesus is about to get stoned for saying that he and the Father are one, which they perceive to be a claim to be God. And, uh, and so Jesus is going to respond to this charge of blasphemy. And he says, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? A quote of Psalm 82, which you have been talking about, a strange psalm, but God says those words, I said you are gods. So the question is like, who's the you? Who's he talking to that he says are gods? And, uh, and the New Ager is going to say, he's talking to me. All of mankind. Yeah, that's not it. For the last two million years, ever Uh, since Homo sapiens sapiens have been around. That's that's who he's talking about. So verse 35, so Jesus will say, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sin of the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So we'll just stop there. Okay, so he quotes Psalm 82, and and, uh, and, and he says, It says you are gods. So what's it's kind of like a what's the big deal argument that I'm claiming to be one with the father. And so and so your point is like that. I mean, you're saying that argument's always been hard for me. It's hard for me. I mean, I understand. So do you want me to read Heiser? What yes, he, what he says. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, Heiser says um, Psalm 82, six says when uh, those to whom the word of God came that called, saying you are gods, the pronouncement from God to whom the word of God came, the Elohim, the gods of the divine council, that is the angelic beings in Psalm 82, one. Uh, the Jews are not the Elohim, and Jesus reminds his enemies uh, that the scriptures say that there are other Elohim, other gods, who are divine sons, and this on the heels of declaring himself one with the Father, John 10.30, puts him in a position of not only claiming, so now he's going to tell us, what is Jesus using this for? He's not only claiming divinity as a son of the Most High, but by claiming to be above the sons of God, above that angelic council, since he is one with the Father. That's right. In other words, Jesus appeals to the sons of God who are more than human. They're angelic beings. And so he's appealing to Psalm 82 that it's calling these more than human angelic beings as gods. And so he's using that as a proof text for defending his claim by calling himself the son of God. He is more than a man, just like those angelic beings are more than a man, but then he's taking it even a step further to say, not only am I more than a man, I am also one with the Father. Yeah, so he, so these are both Christian worldviews, both don't have room for no. the New Age doctrine right. and practice. So I would say John in John five twenty two, Jesus says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. John eight sixteen. Jesus says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And then in John 10, he says, this is not written in the law, you are God's. If he is referring to earthly judges, it makes sense to me why he would be making this argument, which would be as if even human, sinful, fallen human beings can be called Elohim in some sense for acting in the place of judge among the people of God, how much more can I be called the son of God as one whom all judgment has been given to by the Father, right? right? Ideologically, I mean, it's essentially the same argument, whether you understand the sons of God to be human judges or whether you understand the sons of God to be angelic beings. Either way, the line of argument is, hey, uh, Yahweh 
called these lesser beings who are more than human but less than God. Uh, okay, well, more than human if they're the if they're the angelic beings or judges, just kind of leaders among the people. If he was willing to call them gods, how much more can I claim to be the son of God? Right. It's a how much more than right. And it's kind of argument. The ones to whom the word of God came in Psalm eighty-two, verse six. So. We're not talking about all of mankind. There's only two options on the table. We're talking about God's moral representatives in Israel. We have scriptural precedent for that in Exodus 21 and 22. Or we're talking about the divine council, which we have scriptural precedent in other areas. But he's not making an ontological claim about every human that's ever existed since the beginning of time. And very clear proof text for that would be, again, Psalm 920. Put fear in them, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. Isaiah 31.3, the Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. We also looked at um, the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28 last episode. Mm -hmm. Will you still say I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the presence of those who slay you? Right, Because you say in your heart, I am a God, I'm going to send people upon you to kill you as judgment. Yahweh himself issues the capital punishment to the king of Tyre in... um, Ezekiel 28, the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, King Herod in Acts 12. Remember, he tried to wear deity for himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The voice, his hand. Yeah, the voice of a man and not a god. And he right? receives it. Yeah. You know what's crazy about that is that historians who are secular will remark Herod died really quickly for like really random reasons. He's like, he Josephus just mentions it. Yeah. Yeah. And and so and the only, comments on that. Exactly. And so, and then Isaiah 14 where, again, people think he's talking about, like, to the spiritual power behind that as well. There's people who say he's talking to Lucifer. But, again, you have, I will ascend to the level of the Most High. He's trying to compete with God's level of deity, the deity of Yahweh. And, again, you have capital punishment issued by Yahweh. Um, the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians 2. Oh, he would, claims to be God. Would be the only other person mm-hmm. where you see this kind of precedent. And they're all just everyone who tries to wear deity for themselves is either killed by God immediately or serves as the type and shadow of an enemy of God in Scripture. The enemy of the God. The enemy. Yeah. Not to mention Nebuchadnezzar, when he tried, he got it along those lines too and started to see himself along that same vein. And God, cray cray. Yeah. God sent him a spirit of delusion. Um, that's another way to say it. Yeah. So, uh, this would be the question. So that, I would say this too. So if God, and ask the question, if God wanted us to think of ourselves in this light, why is it the case that everyone who thought of themselves right. in that light in scripture was issued the capital punishment from Yahweh himself? You'd see a better biblical precedent for that. Right. Yeah. And I think, oh, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say that there are people out there, there are Christians who are being lured um, into uh, these kinds of uh, interpretations. Uh, people who uh, okay, I'm interested. I'm getting I'm getting some freedom. I'm getting some some breakthrough in my own self awareness and in my own mental health because of new age practices. Uh, this is helping me. This is guiding me. And and look, it looks like Jesus is kind of he's kind of a spiritualist. He's kind of a mystic. And look at these passages that say that we're gods. And look at these passages that say the kingdom of God is in me. And and look at these passages that say that these springs of life will come flowing out of me. And uh, that that Jesus said some some stuff like I am the light and I am the way and I am the bread and he says all these different things and look look how mystical that is the thing is is 
people are using New Age definitions and importing them into their scriptures. They're, they're eisegeting is the theological term that we use. And what, what you need to be doing is you need to find the historical, grammatical interpretation for these texts. You go to a Christian historian, Christian theology that make explanations for these things. You, you can read socialism into the Bible if you try hard enough. You can read uh, capitalism into the Bible if you try hard enough. You can read uh, 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 Republican it, or Democrat or any, any, anything that you MAGA want. MAGA 2020 yeah, into yeah, the you Bible. You can read you MAGA want. straight into the scriptures. Uh, you know, he's Osiris. You can read anything into the Bible that you want to read into the Bible, right? You can eisegete anything. Uh, the problem or is... Or narsegete it. Narsegete it. You can... Yeah, we made everybody mad. That's cool. Uh, but, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. The point the point is is that the scripture in itself like it reveals truth if you allow it to speak for itself and not try to proof text and source text and read your ideas into the bible right. the bible has a consistent coherent theme if you let it speak right. um all of those passages i am the light i am the way i am the bread these are rooted in the the historic tradition of Israel. Mm-hmm. He's speaking of the the tabernacle. He's speaking of the uh, uh, of the the feast of booths. He's speaking of all of these Jewish, uh, 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 deeply, deeply meaningful Jewish imagery. It's saying these things speak to me. That's right. So we need to be careful and not to, uh, because of pragmatism, because of the effect it's having on us. Take a few ideas, read them into the Bible, so that it justifies the the pragmatic. Uh, soothe uh, of the New Age doctrines. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think another thing I'd, I'd love to emphasize is that, you know, as, as the New Ager is wanting the, to find this divine spark, this divinity in themselves, and, and and we're pushing back hard about against that and saying, we're totally depraved and we're wicked apart from God and all of this, and we've got to repent of our sins. Absolutely. At the same time, like, I don't have to be God for me to see God's beauty in his creating me and humanity, that there is something special about humanity over and against the rest of God's creation. We are made in the image of God. And so to be made in the image of God, that same sort of verbiage you can find in uh, verbiage. Uh, it's not a verb, but anyway, you know what I mean. No, yeah. Vocabulary. Uh, but, but you also can say that like, all the things that you're looking for in the new age, if you're looking for spiritual meaning, if you're looking to make sense of your spiritual experience, if you're looking for truth, enlightenment, those are all things the Christian worldview promises. Mm-hmm. Um, come to Jesus and you'll find truth. Come to Jesus, you'll find life and all of its fullness. Come to Jesus and it makes sense of the supernatural realm. Uh, the, the Christian worldview makes sense of the things that people are looking for. Um, we just don't need to... Take, taking taking part of the gospel is like taking um, a vaccine, right? It, it inoculates you to the real thing, right? And and uh, taking just enough Jesus inoculates you to the real gospel that will actually save you. Right. right. Yeah. So where I was going to go with it was we are made in the image of God, and so and so that means that uh, in a sense, like my son Hudson is made in my image. He's not exactly me but he's like me the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and so we believe we were made in the image of god but that image was 
marred through sin. So this is Christian anthropology was marred through sin. So we did become depraved, but then Jesus, the perfect man came so that when we put our faith in him, he turns us into a new creation. And, and now I have this sort of dual nature inside of me, flesh and spirit battling. And then, uh, when Jesus returns, when we see him, we will be like him for we'll see him as he is first John three. And so that brings us sort of full circle back to that beautiful place where we are glorified with God. So that would maybe be my, my full scope of Christian anthropology. You yeah. You're about to say something. I would say I want to cover two quick verses, <clears throat> very quick, much quicker than the last one, is that people will appeal to teaching Christ consciousness. I probably have chocolate in my teeth. I just ate a granola bar, was jammed it in my face real quick. Yeah, it was good. Um, okay. First Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 16. Okay, you'll see this. Verse 16 is used as a, uh, a common proof text for Christ consciousness because it says we have the mind of Christ. There it is. We have the mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Through spiritual insight, even, we have the mind of Christ. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged of no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. First of all, Paul is addressing Christians, not unbelievers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he's saying, he writes this letter, quote, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So his target audience, again, he's not speaking about all people all places, all times, to those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Second of all, what he's saying is that we're given access to the wisdom of Jesus because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. That's his entire argument, the previous verses, right? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, verses 10 to 12. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So because we can understand the things given to us by God by the Spirit, we can be said to have the mind of Christ insofar as the Spirit of Christ now indwells us and reveals things to our minds. Now how do we receive the Spirit of Christ? Paul's theology tells us, Ephesians 1.13, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Only when you heard the gospel and believed in him did you receive the Spirit. Galatians 2, 3, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So again, people say this is mind of Christ belongs to everyone, all places, all times. It's something they have access to. Paul says, no, I'm writing this to Christians, to those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We're not referencing to people like their ontology, but wisdom made available by the Spirit of God, who is given only to those who hear the gospel and believe it with faith. Should we do one more? Yeah, absolutely. Colossians 1, verse 27 to 28, and people will use this one too. It's important to hit this. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There it is. The Bible speaks all over the place of the indwelling Christ, the indwelling Christ nature. Again, 
Paul is speaking about those who have heard and believed the gospel. Just a few verses earlier, verses 21 to 23, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, those to whom Christ is in are those who received the faith and are continuing in the faith, not shifting from the gospel, who were once alienated prior to the faith and the gospel. And again, Paul's theology tells us that Christ dwells in us through faith in the gospel, not intrinsically. Listen to this in Ephesians 3, verse 16 to 17, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, right? It echoes what Jesus is saying in Revelation 3.20, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I will come in and eat with them and he with me. He's not saying I exist on the inside. He's like, I'm trying to enter. How does he enter? Through faith and repentance. Um, the spirit of God dwells us, dwells within us upon repentance toward the cross, belief in the gospel. Then we're indwelt and sealed with the Holy Spirit, um, it's not something that indwells us intrinsically. Romans 8 verses 9 to 11 make that very clear. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit if – that's a big qualifier there <laughs> – if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, which means there's people who don't have it. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness – if, again, a qualifier, and we know that, that the conditions of that qualifier are fulfilled in faith and repentance, which we've seen, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Dwells in you through faith, not from birth. That's right. Amen. That's good. That's good. That's well, good. man, this is uh, probably a great place to wrap up, man. I, thanks for coming. Thanks for uh, having it's me. It's been fun to hang out from with you this Canada. week. Yeah. From Canada. Uh, Canada eh? And you're coming back uh, in January sometime, yeah. so we'll probably Lord try willing. to get you get you back on. Let's fun. do it. Yeah, so, we can film uh, another four and a half episodes of, yeah. four and a half hours of episodes. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, gonna, I'm totally going to split this into like two or three episodes. How long are we? Gonna, <laughs> it's like almost two hours. Really? Praise yeah, God. Yeah, so, but it's going to it's gonna enrich a lot of people's lives, so I'm super excited for it. For those of you who are watching, man, you watched one of these videos, they blessed you. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button, make sure to like the video. We're going to put information for Stephen's channel in the description of uh, this video so you can go check out his stuff and subscribe there as well. But I'd really encourage you, if you're watching, please consider uh, uh, supporting us either on PayPal, you can give a one-time donation, or if you want to go on Patreon as low as five bucks a month, uh, you can support us there on Patreon. We get extra content uh, that we will be releasing. Uh, Michael and I, our thoughts on specific episodes, testimonies, stories uh, about Michael's background, my background, those kinds of things. Learn a little bit more about the ministry check it out there on Patreon. Uh, five bucks a month as low as there, but you can actually give more uh, if your heart so leads you. Uh, but yeah, that helps us produce content like this. All of this up until this point has been uh, entirely crowdfunded. Uh, we started this our own money, our own energy, our own time, uh, and we're creating a whole lot of content. I, I did the math. Um, uh, as of right now, this year, we've done 114 episodes. This will be episode 115. Dude. Uh, insane. Just this year. 
That's crazy. I think I've done three videos this year on my channel. We, <laughs> we, You're slacking, bro. We planned to do 52 episodes this year. We absolutely <laughs> did. Um, and we've, we'll but that Rona. more than double that. Yeah. That Rona. Wow. So help us. Uh, this is uh, content, man. Lots of people uh, have been blessed by. Uh, and help us continue blessing please, people with this stuff. Please. It, would, it yeah, would be great. And subscribe. Anyways, so we'll see you next time. Next Monday night, 8.30 p.m. Uh, we're actually going to be releasing this video uh, uh, because now we'll we're filming right it. Now. Yeah, we'll see you right now. And this <laughs> we'll see you. Uh, uh, but but uh, uh, we'll be releasing other content. I can't think of who's coming down the pipe because I'm a week behind. This is a pre-recorded uh, We video. have a Hebrews Roots, Hebrew Roots yeah. movement. Uh, okay, uh, several videos coming up. Yeah. Uh, so Hebrew Roots, that's actually December 8th. We have Doug and Holly talking about the NAR. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be on December 7th, the day before. Going back in time, November 30th, we have Alyssa Childers, and she's coming to talk about the progressive gospel. And yep. I've been listening to her podcast. I read her whole book. Very good book. I'd recommend it. It's called Another Gospel. And uh, and we have someone else wonderful, I'm sure. Yeah, we got the president that. of United, uh, the... Wait, we don't even know the, who that is. The president of the United... <laughs> what? Uh, uh, we, yeah, we've got Just the president kidding. from the Calvary Chapel movement coming on. That's going to be fun talking to him about uh, word and spirit balance uh, in, in their space. It's been pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, subscribe. Well, subscribe. All that good content's coming out. Catch yeah. you later. Finish it. Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.